This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Roland Vandermeer. And welcome back, Series XM Bay Area Ventures, live from the campus of Wharton in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. On today's show, we're talking about money that matters, i.e. those people and investors and entrepreneurs that are creating entities that are actually making a difference in this world as we know we all need it now. If you have any questions, give us a call at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm joined now on the line by Dave Chen. Dave Chen is founder, CEO, principal, chairman, and actually had a product development for Equilibrium Capital, one of my favorite people in the world who has been making a difference now for over 12, 15 years in the space of sustainability and impact. Anyway, Dave formed Equilibrium Capital in 2007, and he's been driving hard, building a firm that is actually making massive impacts, and Dave's here to share a lot. Dave, thanks very much for joining me today. Hey, Roland, thank you so much. That was very kind of you in the, in the introduction. Oh, no, 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 no. Come on. You are one of the foremost leaders out here that has been making a difference. In fact, we just had um, Paul Herman on the line here in, in the in the um, offices here, and it's been amazing him talking about the meeting you just had in Chicago, in fact, um, it, with all the sustainability professors around the country and the world, in fact. Yeah, yeah that was that was really thrilling. It, it, part of this is, look, it, you can, uh, you can uh, make a difference by being an investor and creating uh, investment portfolios and funds that deliver both uh, returns and impact, and 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 hopefully you can do that on a scalable basis. And we'll probably spend a whole lot of time talking about that, uh, you know, in specifics. But but the other ways that you want to influence is uh, by making sure that we're training the next generation of investors investment professionals at, at business schools, whether that's undergraduate or graduate, in how they can use uh, the financial tools uh, that they learn in school uh, to, to again, make a positive benefit and impact using these uh, tools. And so this is the third year now uh, we've convened uh, this year 80 professors from around the world uh, that all teach sustainable finance or impact investing or both, and uh, and because the field is both new and undergoing right now a, a huge inflection, sophistication, increased sophistication. I, I felt that it was that we had an obligation to upgrade and uplevel the uh, the kind of education that we were giving kids. And so we're at a stage where these eighty professors are. We actually have now one hundred and fifty around the world that we've identified, and eighty attended last week or the week before. And and it was a free exchange of what cases are we teaching, what experiential uh, exercises and tools have we developed for the class, and how we use those, and then what frameworks and and uh, theoretical constructs are we using to train our our students? It, it was really thrilling. That's amazing, and and that's just a snippet of what Dave you are about. Because uh, we can go on story after story, and I'm going to bring some of these to life on this hour we have together. But first, I'd like you to kind of frame up Equilibrium Capital in your best words in two or three minutes, because we have a lot to go through here. And Equilibrium yeah. is a fascinating company and one of the foremost leaders that created product that actually was investable, that was inherently sustainable, and it's 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 unique in that sense. Thank you, thank you. We, we, we founded the company uh, asking the question um, uh, uh, or answering the question that sustainability we saw not in the frame of the words obligation or responsibility or even the word imperative. We, 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 we saw sustainability as uh, economic uh, advantage, as a, a better way of doing things, uh, uh, and and if you believe that, uh, then it should create, quote-unquote, outsized returns or at the very least market rates of returns. We, we saw those advantages being um, applied in a category of investing called real assets, uh, which is uh, uh, investing in operating assets, things like land, like uh, buildings, uh, in our case, working farms, and also uh, distributed energy and water uh, plant and facilities. 
And we saw the opportunity to uh, be able to uh, present these kinds of strategies to institutional investors because they weren't uh, they were not couching sustainability in, and again the frames of responsibility or of of of, of obligation. We were couching them in the terms of of competitive advantage and therefore uh, increased returns, which is something that the institutional investor could wrap their head around and 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 complied with their their policies and 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 uh, investment protocols. So that's what we did. We build uh, uh, primarily portfolios in the area of ag and food, uh, and then we build portfolios in the area of wastewater and energy distributed systems. So and I think I think plants. I'm going to um, yeah. juxtapose this with the prior conversation. Paul talked about ESG and all these metrics. He has 100 metrics to rate things. But what was interesting about what you did at Equilibrium is these assets, if you treat them well and treat them right and, and keep them for generational wealth, as you used to say, you yeah. know, they actually perform better. The period, they just perform better. They're going to have better returns, better. There is no give up here. This is all about you take care of something that's taking care of you and you're going to perform better. And it was inherent in everything you did. And that was a breakthrough. I thought that most people didn't see. Well, I have nothing to add. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to do that to you. I'm sorry. That's great. Friends of ours just uh, a few years ago bought uh, the hydro uh, assets of uh, one of the big aluminum companies in this country. Some of those hydro power producing assets uh, are 100 years old. And uh, the the aluminum company needed you know hydro power and and lots of it and it had to be cheap. Unfortunately, m- most of the aluminum plants have left the United States and and yet they still had these hydro facilities. And again, as I said, some of these are hundred years old. Friends of ours bought the entire portfolio and then put them through a, an upgrade, and it's become an incredibly important uh, and uh, highly productive uh, energy producing asset. And as I said, some of these things are, you know, decades old, and they're going to continue to be in production for decades. Wow. Wow. That, that is a great example of, you know, taking care of resources that benefit all of us. Um, and I think you, you've worked in the, the water space for quite a long time and think water is incredibly valuable. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think about water and what's going on there? Yeah, I think I think uh, describing water is full of really bad puns, and um, uh, the the biggest problem with water is everyone likes to talk about water as the new oil, and unfortunately, water's um, not very valuable in its units. In other words, a fifty-five gallon drum of of of, of oil is is worth you know fifty bucks, a hundred bucks. Fifty-five gallon of water is worth I don't know a few pennies. So, so yeah, but so, not at Safeway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But, but I think that 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 water tends to be um, uh, inherently almost localized in water basins, and 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 it is critical. You know, we know the California shortages, and so it's one of these paradoxes where the the water is incredibly important. It's incredibly valuable, but as a resource, it's it's actually very hard to transact. It's very hard to transport. It's not very fungible, uh, and uh, and so it, it becomes a particularly difficult asset class because um, although it's important, you almost can't get access to it. There, there's not an easy way to invest in it. Almost every one of the other strategies that have employed, including water rights, you know, most of them have had very limited success. And even the Murray Darling Basin, which has been the uh, the example that folks have really uh, focused on for the last decade, which is the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia and their water trading mechanism. It's a tremendous market, but it has great limitations. And the last couple of years have really shown the limitations in the Murray-Darling. And so it's a, it's actually a very hard category. And, and I think you have to look at water adjacencies. In fact, something that you, you know, looked at, Roland, you know, was the idea of, of water as energy, New water, water recycling, water treatment, but but not necessarily, you know, water as an asset. Right. So really reusing water, putting it to better yeah. use and, and yeah. overuse. And example yep. of Israel, I think that's a great example yep. you cite. Why don't you yep. explain that one? That's a really good point. Sure. Again, 
awful jokes in this category. Uh, you know the the old the old joke. Uh, why don't you drink water because uh, fish pee in it? Uh, well, you know Israel is one of the great countries. It is, it is the prototypic example of a country where almost all water uh, is uh, recycled, and so technically uh, you are drinking. Uh, sewage-treated or processed water. Uh, in the U.S., and a lot of this is about mental models, right? Because in the U.S., for example, we will take our water out of a water treatment facility, treat it to EPA levels of quality, cleanliness, and then dump it into a river. And then uh, 10 miles down the river or a mile down the river, the next town sucks it up and, 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 and then treats it to and then calls it clean water. And so one one town sewer is the next town's you know uh, uh, drinking water, uh, and 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 so Israel has sort of made its way through that mental model, where uh, uh, water that could come from either aquifer or from very very expensive desalination plants uh, is literally uh, treated, and it's got the highest percentage of of water treatment and water reuse in in the world. And and they'll soon be a model for for the rest of the world because we're all going to have to deal with this. Yeah, no, water is getting more and more precious, and it will continue to do so. And I don't think, you know, as you said, the value of water is incredible. Yet it's so hard to monetize. Right. That said, we know what it takes to recycle water. We know what it takes to desalinate water. And yep. these are still opportunities, okay, for all of us because we will we will reach a point where we'll have to pay for our water no matter what. Um, exactly. Which leads me to agriculture, which is probably, besides industry, agriculture is one of the biggest users of water. And it's a place where you've not only dabbled in, but actually spearheaded in agriculture. And you are now spearheading a greenhouse you know, projects. I see that. I see that out there in the world that you're actually funding greenhouse. Tell us about that effort, because it has a lot to do with water, too. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think we should touch on the topic right after that about the other resources that uh, are becoming very constrained in in agriculture. And uh, but 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 water, um, and everyone knows that water in the Western United States, especially from an agricultural standpoint, has all these very uh, uh, layered laws in terms of use. For example, there's there's in many of the Western states there's a you have water rights, but you also have a use it or lose it. So even if you're the most efficient uh, farmer, uh, there's a there's a danger that if you don't use the water rights that you've been issued, you might lose them. And, and so so sometimes the field irrigation that we see, where you're basically flood irrigating a field, is as much uh, the fact that they haven't they haven't invested in more uh, uh, efficient mechanisms. It's sometimes not even that. Sometimes it's just as simple as they just have to open up the, the pumps and let the water out because, because of the use it or lose it. So, so water is, 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 in, is incredibly uh, precious within agriculture. And so we've looked very hard at uh, implementing aggressive uh, use of both soil treatments that uh, increase the uh, uh, moisture retention, plant-by-plant uh, -plant drip irrigation, uh, uh, the management of the amount of evaporation that takes place in the field. And probably the epitome of this, as you mentioned, is the, is the, uh, uh, the field of high-tech uh, uh, glass house agriculture. And, and when you use the word for your audience, greenhouse, many of us uh, sort of immediately think about a Quonset hut of plastic, a little hoop house that sits in the backyard. You know, maybe it's 20, 30, 50 feet long, uh, or they imagine these, these large um, uh, uh, Quonset hut-like plastic structures. Uh, that's not actually what we're talking about. What we're actually talking about is uh, glass and steel construction uh, oftentimes seven meters uh, 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 tall of internal space. And greenhouses now range anywhere from 10 acres in size under roof to, in our portfolio, the largest greenhouse is about 125 acres. And, uh, and so that's, call it about 5 million square feet of glass and steel uh, fully enclosed where you're controlling the oxygen concentration, the CO2 concentration, the air temperature, the air humidity, and then also oftentimes the 
I'll call it wind speed that's that's taking place inside of or the circulation speed that's taking place inside that, as well as uh, the amount of of photons, uh, light energy that's that's hitting the plant at given parts of the day. So you're really optimizing the photosynthesis of a plant and all the various inputs. Just to give you a perspective, you know these greenhouses uh, can range anywhere from a million and a quarter dollars per acre all the way up to a high-tech, the, the ultra-high-tech uh, 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 lettuce greenhouses that could be upwards of $2.5 million an acre and produce product, tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuces, strawberries, uh, at prices that are oftentimes when you take the full system's cost uh, comparable to field and allow you to produce 11 months out of the year. And you may comparable the field because you can produce 11 months out of the year, right? That's probably it, it, It's a combination of, of producing uh, year-round. It's a combination of the density that you can produce. Uh, it's a combination of the, the consistency of quality, so you have less shrinkage. You have less damage uh, from uh, uh, being in the field. And so when you add all those things up together, the energy cost, the water cost, the density, the quality, the consistency, the lack of shrinkage, uh, all that put together, and, and you're, you're, you're actually very, very close to, to field cost. Okay. Well, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio Series 132. I'm your host, Roland Vanderbilt. I'm joined here by my guest live, Dave Chen, Chairman, Founder, and Head of Product Development of Equilibrium Capital Group. If you have questions, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Dave, let's go right back to where we were just talking. So you just mentioned something before we started the greenhouse conversation, which is these are really high tech. I mean, and they also have automated a lot of robotics going to work, and it's yep. incredible how sophisticated they've gotten and are getting still. And can you tell us where these uh, technologies are taking place? Are they taking place here in the U.S. or in Europe or in Asia? Well, uh, uh, the name Vandermeer, you know, Dutch. Uh, I, I, I joke that uh, there's, a, there's a great article uh, actually, entire uh, edition of National Geographic a couple of years ago that went into how this tiny little country, uh, Holland, the Netherlands, uh, has become farmer to the world, and and uh, in, in some ways, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, you got you got the Netherlands, which is a small country. You got the Netherlands, which is very northern, and so. Uh, the uh, the amount of uh, of sunlight it gets in the winter months, the day length, uh, you know they were the leaders a hundred years ago in starting the concept of indoor growing and have been the technical leaders uh, ever since. And I, I joke that wherever you go around the world uh, and find uh, a, a greenhouse project, whether it's in China or in Mexico or in Russia. Uh, you'll find some six foot six blonde guy that towers above everyone else, and it's it's a Dutchman, and uh, and you'll find Dutch vendors, Dutch uh, technology, Dutch construction crews uh, throughout the world on on this industry. Uh, Israel is the other place where uh, indoor growing has uh, had its uh, a, a tremendous concentration. Europe uh, basically eats this way. Um, there's about 30,000 acres of producing high-tech uh, greenhouses across northern Europe from Germany, France, Belgium, and then but an incredible concentration in, in the Netherlands. Uh, they've been an exporter of, of, of this concept, uh, and uh, the U.S. is relatively minor uh, in terms of its greenhouse uh, concentration across Mexico, the U.S., and Canada, we have about 5,000 acres, of which a fair amount of that is actually pretty old. And, uh, and so in the core of the United States, I'd say we have probably about 1,500 acres. That we see doubling uh, every few years now. And, uh, and no, it is not driven by cannabis, although cannabis is making a dent. Uh, but it is driven by the need to move uh, uh, these, these vegetable and fruit types across the U.S. to become more regional and really create a much more uh, resilient uh, supply chain across the United States. As opposed to what we see growing in Salinas Valley here, you know, all the produce of the United States that just will not scale anymore, right? It, 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 it's, 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 
it's obviously California is 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 a great example of the great salad bowl and uh, wonderful scaling uh, of that. But but it, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the American uh, uh, salad and fruit bowl, the things that we normally eat, vegetables and things like that. Uh, we're actually built and designed for the Eisenhower uh, superhighway system. So we benefited from the fact that we have this wonderful fertility in California, and we have this uh, east-west and north-south highway system. And so in many ways, a lot of our uh, supply chain was engineered to take advantage of engineering as opposed to necessarily uh, uh, resiliency or good taste, flavors, etc., and I think what what is happening now is that because of the concentration of retailers, uh, we have now a handful of retailers that 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 each have about fifteen to twenty percent market share in the United States. The, the result of that is that there is a very very uh, clear strategic focus by these retailers, our grocery chains, on uh, supply chain resiliency. People have just, over the years, grown used to the fact that they have great vegetables and great fruit every day of the year. So the resiliency of that supply chain, the uh, the uh, the uh, not to be dependent upon a drought-prone California, uh, not to be dependent upon uh, other weather events, but to create a resilient supply chain has now become one of the most important things, as well as food safety. And so you got a whole bunch of factors that are leading up to the uh, impending growth of greenhouses in the United States. Wow. And you, you, before we jumped into the whole green, modern greenhouse concept, you said let's, we could talk about the other issues that are in, impacting agriculture besides yep. water. Which were you we referring to? Yeah. I, I, water is clearly one of the most visible ones, but there are three other things that I think uh, are um, sort of, I'll call it natural resources. That that impact that impact uh, agriculture tremendously. Uh, uh, one is climate shift, and 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 this is not about whether uh, uh, climate is man climate change or carbon or anything like that is man made or not. It has everything to do with the fact that as weather patterns change, uh, they affect plants and what you can grow and optimize uh, 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 significantly. So, so, but people generally, when they think about climate, they generally think about extreme temperature. Oh, it's getting hot. The reality is climate change is affecting uh, a number of climate variables. One is humidity. When is it hot and humid, and when, uh, and, and, and at what part of the year? Uh, the temperature can also affect uh, things that are very important to the Western United States, which is snow melt. A lot of our streams and, and, and rivers and therefore pumping of irrigation systems is fed by snow melt. Well, if, if, if when we were kids, uh, temperature was much steadier and the uh, snowpack out of, let's say, the Sierras melted over a three-, four-month period starting in April and maybe, maybe lasting all the way through to July, um, when do plants need the most water? Well, it's not in May. All right, the soils are nicely um, moist from rains. Uh, it's in August, all right, and so so little things like the the temperature gradients and 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 how they occur, uh, humidity patterns. Uh, humidity patterns are also not just the humidness that you feel. And by the way, plants tend to uh, not tolerate high humidity, and so there are certain breeds of plants that will shut down and 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 you know effectively go to sleep. Well, that affects your photosynthesis. That affects your productivity. Uh, other aspects of weather include uh, things like um, uh, when is it sunny? When is it cloud-covered? And if that shifts during the year, uh, now you also have uh, impact on productivity. So that's number one, is, 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 is the effect of climate uh, shifts that are taking place on plants. And, and think about this. Uh, you can maybe, you know, replant uh, uh, wheat and row crops from year to year. But if you have an orchard of almonds, that's a hard thing to move. Yeah. 2,000 acres of almonds, pistachios, peaches, apples, that's a hard thing to move. And, uh, and your sunk costs and your experience and, you know, the entire ecosystem of picking, packing, I mean, that's a hard thing to move. 
So, so that's number one. Number two, uh, labor. So labor, it, it, it's an especially emotional issue. So I'm going to try to de-emotionalize this. If you actually look at, at California uh, migrant labor availability, it's actually been long before this administration. It's been a declining uh, number uh, coming across uh, the, the, the borders, whether it's illegal or legal. And, and in part, it has to do with the fact that, that, that especially in Mexico, the home economy has improved. Um, and, and so why not stay home and work at the Bombardier uh, turbine factory? Uh, or the the Ford factory that's that's down there, so so that's had an impact on draining. The other thing that people don't talk about is that that in almost every developing country, um, when you begin to educate and offer education availability to women, and they join the workforce. Uh, Almost immediately, when those two very positive outcomes for society take place, birth rates drop from historic fours and fives almost immediately down to two. And, and you can chart this out in almost every developing country that when those events take place, uh, your birth rates drop. And so you could make the argument that that's incredibly positive for, for, for our world and society. From a, from a labor availability standpoint in agriculture, it means that we're going to be constrained in labor um, from here on out. And it has relatively less to do with the administration's policy and everything to do with gross demographics. So, so you're going to watch um, uh, uh, between these resource factors of climate, these resource factors of labor, of energy availability, of water, as well as the uh, I'll call it competitive issues like food safety. There's a train that's moving to increase consolidation, and I'll call it the infrastructuring of agriculture, automation infrastructure, water management infrastructure, and energy infrastructure, uh, uh, and automation and performance in infrastructure. Uh, you're going to watch uh, 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 agriculture over the next 10 years uh, transform. Wow. Okay. Well, we need to take a short break here, Dave, because we, we really, really dove into agriculture, but I want to cover a few more topics with you when we sure. come back. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is Dave Chen. He's the chairman, founder, and at Equilibrium Capital, as well as head of product development. Stay with us as we continue our conversation after the break. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. My guest this hour is Dave Chen, founder, chairman of Equilibrium Capital, uh, and also head of product development for an investment firm that focuses on sustainably driven real asset investment opportunities across real estate, agriculture, water, waste, and energy. And when we left off, we were touching on agriculture and all the complex issues that go into what's happening there. Um, what I'd love to do, Dave, this next half hour, actually, is really walk into some of the other areas as well that are really important and pressing. We, I think you focus on agriculture. It's one of the world's pressing issues of getting food to people that matter and also reducing methane and reducing water and reducing all these environmental effects of agriculture, which was a pretty, pretty critical area to go after. If you really summarize, what are the key areas that you want to focus on as a firm that you can address that will actually make a difference right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, one area that uh, uh, we do not participate in but, but is a great example of how when economic models work uh, that they can uh, uh, change the, the, the face of our world incredibly quickly, and that is the area of uh, renewable energy, specifically solar and, and, and wind. I think it always, it, it always shocks people uh, the fact that uh, uh, within a span of about 15 years, uh, we went from a less than one gigawatt of, of renewable energy to now in excess of uh, 80 or 90 gigawatts of, of renewable energy, and that in some parts of this country, upwards of 25% or more of our energy generation load is now, uh, energy generation capacity is now 
renewable energy. Uh, and, and that's a great example of when the capital markets uh, can align uh, to sustainable interests. It, it can move money and investments and therefore assets and uh, incredibly quickly. Our strategy has always been to find uh, market niches uh, that where we can have a competitive advantage in our understanding and knowledge or access to uh, to um, what we think of as mispriced assets. So the good news about renewable energy is that it's uh, it's a it's a wonderfully efficient capital market today. Uh, the assets are are have shifted now to how cheap can your cost of capital be to to deploy that? But I, I wanted to highlight that for the for the listeners because you know literally if you if you do the back of the envelope in the United States in fifteen sixteen years now since about the year two thousand we've we've put about half a trillion dollars or more in in renewable energy invested and and in operating facilities and and so these challenges that we face of of meeting, oftentimes we'll use the term, you know, sort of planetary scale problems of energy, water, demographic density, uh, et cetera, and, and, a, and, uh, and a heating planet. Um, they seem daunting, but, but, but at the same token, if we, if we can work to align uh, the capital as well as the technology and the ability to scale these, these things um, and repeat them, scale and repeat, uh, you know, we can make a dent. And, and so some of the strategies that we've looked at hard are whether we can uh, scale and repeat uh, waste to energy and waste to water kinds of uh, facilities, uh, you know, things as mundane as uh, taking uh, animal manures and waste, and we know how dangerous methane is. Uh, it's an ex- it's a it's a multiplier of, of of CO2's damage, you know, upwards of 25 to 30 times. And if we can effectively process um, animal manures, uh, and uh, and that includes the pigs, the chickens, the cows, and there are 95 million cows in the United States, and there's eight or nine million uh, dairy cows, and you know they technically poop and 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 every day and off gas methane, and so. If we can uh, harness those things to create renewable natural gas, RNG, uh, we can at least put a dent in in methane's uh, uh, effects. So those are the kinds of things that that we look at hard and build portfolios around. Yeah, and and I remember that we looked at a lot of things in the past uh, across energy you mentioned and waste you mentioned yeah. but but when you're talking about you know dealing with methane and all these issues of the world if you kind of numbered them down your list of things that we must address these things in the next 10 to 20 years okay and and I think you built various asset categories around these right. issues as well mm-hmm. um my question to you is really if you had to focus on your and maybe it's asking too much say the one that you really want to, if you talk about waste, I get it, to waste to water, waste to energy, yeah. I got that. But what is some, an area that you think you absolutely must be in that you have to open up or we have to as a society open up right now? I, yeah, that, that's a, that's, that you're, you're asking both a, uh, uh, in some ways, that, that old McKinsey diagram of the uh, you know, marginal effect and marginal cost diagram and marching through that, and then you're asking us a strategy question. So, so uh, uh, if I look very closely at, at equilibrium, I, I think that we have uh, we can't do all things to all people. When we got started in the company, uh, we actually entered uh, in the in the green real estate area, and we and we saw that as uh, residential uh, 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 high rise commercial real estate. Uh, is a va- major contributor to energy use and a major contributor then to you know to uh, the climate issue and energy consumption, and so uh, we saw that as a as a way of of making a contribution, uh, getting behind green building, and and again that sounds really trite today in what 2019, but but when we started this in 2007. Green buildings were just making a dent, and uh, we're just making it onto the market, and relatively few people paid attention to it. Uh, lead gold, lead platinum buildings. Um, 
the good news is that field has taken uh, a life of its own, and in fact, the field now is moving towards net zero buildings, buildings that uh, can generate energy and can recycle their water. And so we feel like our ability to significantly make an impact there as an investor, uh, a l- large number of those kinds of techniques and uh, and the building of green buildings and the building of portfolios of green buildings has largely entered the mainstream. So so we've continued to look at other things. We don't participate in transportation uh, uh, in, in part because there's plenty of, of investors that are uh, taking a lead in, in uh, electrifying uh, and or uh, reducing the need for transportation or the transportation infrastructure. For us, it's, it's been really focusing on distributed uh, waste to energy, waste to, to water, uh, and, uh, and then the large uh, uh, agricultural uh, uh, infrastructure. So, so the, the, the competitive answer for, for your question is that we've chosen places to concentrate where we have the greatest competitive advantage and insight advantage, and by no means are we trying to go down the Pareto chart of the greatest impacts and sort of pick them off. I, I think we're we're taking a um, uh, we're realizing that 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 there are a lot of folks that are coming at this problem, and I think that's another question to really deal with. And that is, how do we see when we started 12 years ago talking about sustainability and investing in sustainability as an economic advantage? How that's progressed over the last decade? Yeah, we we had again Paul Herman from Hip Investor, you know, on talking about his hundred metrics. Um, yeah, it was quite fascinating, and and the the correlation. I remember uh, Harvard studies and other studies just like yeah. that, McKinsey studies that showed that yeah. yes, if you paid attention to the metrics and you manage a portfolio accordingly, you would actually perform better and with less risk. And that was incredible, and it took a long time for people to believe that. I I still don't think it's common knowledge, you know, that fact alone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's that set of concepts that 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 Paul and other ESG uh, portfolio managers are pushing. I think there's also another centricity for this, and that is the the big asset owners. And oftentimes, it's now the term uh, that's being used: uh, the the universal owners. Uh, in, in other words, where portfolios are so big, you cannot beat the market. You are the market. You right. own the market. And, and I think their issue is slightly different, and I think it's important to peel that apart. Uh, I, I would say that uh, Mercer uh, and the work that they've done in the last uh, few years, last five years, and the two reports that they've published really put a fine point on this second way of thinking about this, and that is what's the inherent risk uh, of climate change on the portfolio uh, resiliency, the portfolio value, does climate change adversely impact what you own already? And and the flip side of that is, does climate change point a direction for for what you need to be in uh, from a portfolio standpoint? Uh, uh, it's not speaking out of school. It's very public. But New York Common Pension Plan is at the forefront in this country of doing that kind of analysis across their portfolio. Uh, it's it's it, the, the approach is almost de facto uh, part of the, uh, the the 2019 Mercer report, which I think is, is well worth reading. And that converts this whole language into a risk and opportunity set language, uh, which is a little bit different than, than, than what Paul is talking about. And, and we see pockets now around the world where the biggest institutions are in some ways uh, – driving this conversation the most aggressively. And so and, it actually gives me some some optimism. Okay. All right. So, so I've looked at the data out there. You have too. You've been around the world. Yep. I think you've been to the Economic Forum, the World Economic Forum, and Davos and all these amazing places when people are talking about this. But it still seems to me that there's such denial out there that we have no choice but to put our resources into solving these problems. And the shift is still too gradual. Uh, and I swear, 10 years ago, we talked about it. In 10 years, we won't even have to have this conversation. Yet still, even in this country with asset managers, we still have to have this conversation. And it's, it's kind of hard to believe when you look at the data out there, what's going on with the, with the world. Okay, We do not have the time to wait. And can you, you just said you feel optimistic. Can you give us a reason why? I mean, you think the shift is coming fast enough or not? <sighs> 
Didn't mean to stump you, you know, but you know it, it is important. No, no, it is important. And and um, look, I, I don't want to give you a glib answer. And and is it moving fast enough? Yeah, we're all impatient, and we know that 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 things are melting and things are changing, and 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 for the worse. And we know that the the insect count is declining at a at a at a at an accelerating rate, and and we we you know we know all, all these things are happening. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a gross sense of urgency, but I also see that that there are some actions that are being taken, and and again, the aggressive listeners will say not fast enough and and I can't argue with that but I also have to be optimistic because big structural elements are changing so if you go to southeast asia uh uh right now in the last 12 months almost every single money center bank has made a policy and strategy decision not to finance new coal fire power plants and 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 they're executing policies around lending to palm oil plantations and less about palm oil but more about the deforestation in order to become agricultural producing um, uh, lands and and everyone forgets that when south africa uh, the whole apartheid thing it wasn't when the equity markets and people were boycotting it was when major banks and specifically the uk banks Stopped lending to South Africa. That's what brought it to its knees, and and so these are the things that give me optimism that big lenders uh, are are responding to these things. And again, you can say that it's slow, but my optimism is that 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 there is response that's taking place. I think it's frankly, I you know. I, I've, I've actually, Roland, never attended Davos or the World Economic Forum. I've never attended the Clinton Global Initiative. Um, and um, But what I am attending these days are a, a lot of closed-door uh, meetings uh, where these things are now actively being discussed. I moderated a... a, a closed-door internal meeting of one of the largest... Uh, holding companies. It's actually a sovereign wealth fund's holdings of their meeting of their uh, senior executives around this issue of sustainability and how they would be implementing these policies uh, 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 and the implications of these policies. That's a conversation, a serious... And by the way, it wasn't full of CSR executives. It was full of uh, the, the, the line officers, if not the C-suite officers, uh, and these are some of the of major, major corporations, and and the conversation is having a, a, a serious note to it. So, so I give, I give, you know, that's what gives me optimism is that we're starting to see the major universal owners, you know, Hiro Mizuno, uh, the CIO, chief investment officer of GPIF. There you go. I can say an entire sentence with nothing but 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 but, but initials. Um, GPIF is the is the is the uh, the gap pension fund uh, uh, portfolio for uh, Japan, and that's 1.7 trillion dollars now. And since four years ago, uh, Hiro Mizuno as CIO has been shifting uh, the uh, the risk management uh, as well as uh, the importance of climate change. Uh, uh, aggressively at GPIF, and it, it has influenced the entire Japanese asset owner and asset manager marketplace. Wow. So, 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 hold on. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah. I didn't interrupt yeah. you, but just let me give our listeners a brief reminder here. We're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and I'm joined on the line by Dave Chen. Chairman, founder, and head of product development at Equilibrium Capital Group. If you have a question, please give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So you were saying about Hero? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, frankly, if I if I went to uh, uh, some of the, the 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 conferences like I don't know, SoCap and other places where where these kinds of things are discussed, you know, I, I bet you there's barely a recognition of, of, of who this individual is. Yeah. 
but 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 the impact that this individual is having on an economy and an investment economy the size of Japan is 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 frankly stunning, and it, it's all within the last few years. I, I also don't think it's a it's a it's a mistake or an accident that you're starting to see writings about this stuff coming out of people like Ray Dalio and 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 you know almost every one of the major investment platforms is rolling out some set of products that allow investors to access these kinds of 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 uh, portfolios, you can make the argument that that they're not action oriented enough, that they're not making enough dramatic change. But I also think that this is about creating a, a, a movement beyond the early adopters, and this is the kind of thing that that needs to happen. I also want to just say at this very point too, though, that that, that capital markets and market making don't solve every problem, and and at some point we're going to have to step up to the fact that. The government's going to have to take action on this and, yeah, uh, and, and run side by side. And, and people are going to have to make, whether it's the word sacrifice or the word shift in their behaviors and in their preferences, these are all things that are going to have to happen. Yeah, especially if I mean, we used to draw this line, I think, of uh, our standard of living here in the United States and standard of living, say, in India. Okay, those are great odds with each other and how do you raise india without lowering united states you know you you have to change shifts but the question is is can we live can we thrive you know in that way because no one wants to sacrifice right everyone wants to thrive right. and are there systems and processes in place to do that and we think there are in fact if we had started this 30 years ago we would be in a lot better place today and i think we could actually create the turn without having too much collateral damage but it's it's happening dave i want to go to something that you have forwarded, uh, you have actually foraged new territory. You talked about beginning about education of the young. Well, you yep. started a program with universities and the major business schools around the, <clears throat> I guess, the country, then now the world, about those innovative MBAs who were kind of creating new business ideas on impact and sustainability. Can you get, tell us a little bit about that? Oh, thank you. Um, this, is, this is probably my favorite topic. So about 10 years ago, I uh, started teaching uh, impact investing in sustainable finance at, at Kellogg. And you know, frankly, 10 years ago, it was really seat of the pants. And, and it was drawing upon uh, a whole set of, of, I'll call it, beliefs about uh, where this field would evolve to. And, and it's a finance course. And, uh, and then subsequently, I, I, I helped start the impact investing class also at Stanford uh, Business School and uh, did that for about three years. And, and part of this is a deep-seated belief that, that, that not only do the, do the young have an innovative capacity, but, but they have the ability to apply these finance tools in, in different ways. One of the ways I start the class, I ask the question to the students, what's the difference between a collateralized debt obligation of subprime debt CDOs of subprime versus securitization of microfinance portfolios. You know, in effect, they're the same basic instruments, and yet um, uh, uh, they're viewed in very, very different ways. And 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 so, what's the difference? And and you know, I, I make a joke and I say, well, both of them are lending to poor people. So, what's the difference? Well, intentionality and in how you use the tool is uh, is critically important. So we want to be able to let students know that many of the instruments that we've created in finance uh, can be used in very intentionally proactive, positive ways. And, uh, and so the output of that class was, and I required the students to come up with a financial investing instrument or investing vehicle or a financial vehicle uh, that uh, delivers both uh, market returns, as well as intentional impact on society or uh, the environment, and has a hope to become a scalable instrument. Because uh, fundamentally, I believe that if you can repeat things at scale, you can make a huge dent, just like the example about solar energy and, and wind energy. So we created a thing called the Sustainable Investing Challenge. Uh, you can find it on the web, sustainableinvestingchallenge.org. 
Uh, today, it's uh, now known as the uh, Kellogg Morgan Stanley Sustainable Investing Challenge. And every year, we ask business uh, finance students, graduate students from schools from around the world, to form teams and build uh, investment ideas or an investment vehicle or investment strategy that delivers exactly the things I talked about. And the, the, the cool thing is that over the last, I think we're in our ninth year now, um, we've had a number of these student teams actually build a financial instrument, uh, a fund, a bond, an insurance product, uh, that that delivers that and 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 builds upon their innovation that they created and and the whole idea here is can finance itself be a source of innovation which is a hard thing to say when you're in the Silicon Valley because it's all about you know inventing software inventing hardware inventing new business models but can finance itself be an innovative uh, instrument and and that's 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 what the SIC is all about. And I think what's what's most impressive is many people, and I, you know, lecture sometimes at Wharton, sometimes at the engineering school, sometimes in other places. And, and most kids look and students look at you and say, "What can I do to make a difference? I don't understand. I have to get a job at Google or something right. like that." And then your course actually opens up the opportunity that you can make a difference. And I think more than those people that did create companies or instruments, they actually realize there's an opportunity and they actually seek jobs in those places and they change career paths because of that, don't they? And that's why I use this funny term that the class is all about giving students permission to create value from their value system. And, and I just got an email the other day from one of my ex-students and this is how wide-ranging it can get. She's, uh, she's basically an engineer but took uh, my class from uh, the master's program at, in, at Northwestern's engineering school. And she was going to go back into project management and engineering, and she did. But she has now led – it's an electronic components. It's a, it's a multi-billion-dollar electronics component company. And, and, and these components get used. Uh, one of the segments of business that this company works in is, is building, building uh, uh, electrical systems. And she is now leading uh, the effort inside of this electronic components company uh, to build out a set of both uh, standards as well as architectures of products that clearly are driving the net zero concept in uh, in building buildings through their products wow and and she sent me this presentation and you know she's i don't know three years out of grad school and it's look at that stunning it makes you it just it just makes you smile that's brilliant well dave unfortunately we're out of time right now and thank you for coming on the show thank you for having me yeah, and where can our listeners can go? They can go to eq-cap.com. Is that right? That's that right. The, okay, great. And that's where you can find more about Dave and Equilibrium Capital. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you missed the last two hours, feel free to check it out on demand, SiriusXM app, or Borton Business Radio 132. Um, we're every Monday live at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, right here on SiriusXM 132. Special thanks again to Dave Chen for joining us here today and Paul Harmon. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.